Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, November 18th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The holidays are upon us, which means fresh anxiety about pandemic travel, COVID-19 case counts, and vaccination rates. Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota joins us to talk about the state of the pandemic as we head into Thanksgiving. Al Sandrock, the scientist synonymous with Biogen's quest to develop a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease, is leaving the company. We'll talk about the surprising news, which was broken by Adam Damien and Stats Matt Herper and all its implications. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why? should your health be defined by your zip code. We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. So perhaps the most surprising news in biotech this week was word that Al Sandrock, the top scientist at Biogen and a guy who has been there since the late 1990s and has really been the face of its scientific exploits and mostly its uh, quest to develop a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease, that's a long parenthetical, uh, we learned this week that he will be leaving the company at the end of the year, which... I mean, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it came as a shock to a lot of people who are paid to pay attention to Biogen, whether they be on Wall Street um, or or reporters like us. Um, Adam, what what's going on with Al? Yeah, you know, this was a big surprise. Uh, I have to say that uh, when our source sources told us about Al's departure, uh, that yeah, I, I had to sort of sit down. I, this was not something that I expected. Obviously, we've been writing a lot about Biogen. A lot about Adjuhelm, the Alzheimer's drug, but did not expect to to hear about Al's departure. You know, it's being uh, it's being couched or described as a retirement. Uh, Al is sixty four years old. Like you said, he's been with the company for almost two decades, uh, and you know is is the top scientist at Biogen, uh, the guy who who you know has had a remarkable career there. Uh, you know, I think uh, Damien, I think you you calculated about two thirds of Biogen's revenue is derived from drugs that uh, that were developed under his watch at Biogen. Um, but of course, like, you know, his departure is very sudden. This was not something that was telegraphed. It wasn't planned. It wasn't necessarily messaged to the world that Al was thinking about retiring. So it, it raises a lot of questions about sort of why it's happening now. So where does this leave the company with all of the investigations into 
add to Helm. I mean, just because somebody's retiring, I guess, doesn't mean he won't be involved in in those kinds of conversations. Or I mean, there's Congress is kind of looking into this, but also there's an investigation from uh, into the FDA's decision. Right. So the timing is, I mean, it's it's strange times for for Biogen. So, you know, as you mentioned, there are multiple investigations into the process by which Biogen's drug Aduhelm was approved by the FDA. Now, it seems like from what we can tell externally, that those are largely focused on the FDA itself and its interactions with Biogen. Um, but as we've talked about on this podcast before, it was Al Sandrock, who, you know, like I said, is sort of this figurehead for Biogen science, who had the off the books one on one meeting with a key FDA official in, in the person of Billy Dunn. Uh, Biogen hasn't really discussed that publicly. We don't know um, what kind of documents they've tendered to the various bodies that are investigating this issue. There's no indication, or they, the, Biogen has given no indication, that that ongoing investigation has anything to do with, with Al's uh, planned departure this year. But, you know, it, it's just among the sort of swirling clouds around Biogen. Maybe, you know, even it's below the one that this controversial Alzheimer's drug is not selling. And just this week, did the company disclose that the uh, that regulators in Europe have taken kind of a dim view of the application such that it may not win approval in Europe anytime soon. So the combination of scrutiny over the data, which, you know, people probably don't need us to to recount, uh, frustration and, and curiosity over the FDA approval, and then apparently the sudden closing of a door in Europe it leaves Biogen in this pretty precarious state. And, and you know, as, as Adam mentioned, Al has had a distinguished career at the company going back many years and, and covering uh, many treatments whose uh, effects are not controversial, uh, unlike Aduhelm. So it's not like this is, you know, the headline for the guy's whole career, but the timing of the departure makes it difficult not to kind of think about the Aduhelm aspect of it all. Yeah, and it does leave the company... I would say in a vulnerable position. I mean, it, it, the company's in a weakened state. I mean, there's no, you know, that's that's clear at this point. Um, without somebody running the R&D operation, you know, someone at the top. And right now it's like w- what their future looks like. It, it looks, it's hard to say. I mean, they, they have n- named uh, Priya Singhal, who is their uh, senior vice president for global safety and regulatory sciences, is going to replace Al on an interim basis. There's no indication that she's going to take the job uh, on a full-time basis, and there's really no indication that she's kind of fit for that role. So they're going to have to go out and either, you know, recruit somebody from the outside to take this top R&D job, or they're going to have to find another candidate internally to be promoted to that job. Um, And it just sort of underscores this issue that Biogen has with its pipeline and with its growth. Where is its growth going to come from? Um, You know, Alzheimer's Aduhelm obviously is not uh, performing commercially. They've got the follow-on Alzheimer's drug, Lecanemab, which they're going to file. But again, there's a lot of risk involved there. So I think right now, you know, his departure is time just doesn't, it just sort of adds to all of these existing concerns that people have talked about uh, with respect to Biogen. I wonder, as you're doing all this reporting, what was your sense of what Wall Street, you know, Biogen's investors made of all of this? I was kind of surprised not to see the stock move more after the news about Al Sandrock leaving, um, and then not to see it move more after it disclosed, after Biogen disclosed that European regulators are unlikely to clear Aduhelm. It just seems like at this point, 
investors are like, they've erased this drug from any expectations at Biogen, which is just crazy given that we covering the company and investors investing in this company have spent like the last six years or so being so excited about this drug. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it seems like they have perhaps hit a bottom when it comes to stock price and when it comes to sentiment. I mean, the as you mentioned, Meg, what we used to call aducanumab has been a saga unto itself, um, leading to booms and busts in Biogen stock price, and likewise, just the way the company was considered within biotech and the you know one, two, three, four, five punch or whatever uh, of the controversy surrounding it, the uh, FDA approval, the investigation. I mean, just endless things leave Biogen at a point now where, I mean, you could say perhaps positivity positively. It really can't get much worse in sentiment terms. And so the combination of, of, of Al's departure, which I don't think was favorably received, or I don't think people are reading into that, that there's something positive ahead, um, and the European issue, there's just only so far Biogen can fall in that estimation, which, like I said, you know, the, the silver lining of that is that, you know, it can kind of only be upward from here. When it comes to the stock price, it trades today lower than it was when Adjuhelm was approved back in June. Um, so kind of all of that value is gone, like as if Adjuhelm, from a stock perspective, as if Adjuhelm doesn't exist. You know, whether or not the stock is at a bottom or not, I mean, if you, if you kind of think about what the company does, I mean, the company is sort of maintaining its earnings growth today, largely, you know, on very anemic growth in its multiple sclerosis business, but also with stock buybacks, you know, the, the company buys back a lot of stock every quarter. And so that's how it's kind of keeping the EPS growth, at least. Um, that's not necessarily a recipe for future success. I mean, that's only going to take them so far. Eventually, they're going to have to develop drugs that, you know, that that generate top line growth, which is what they're not doing right now. And, you know, if we look ahead to 2022, you know, things are not looking all that great. Um, you know, Adjuhelm, which was supposed to generate a lot of money for the company in 2022, is not going to do that. Um, and that means that the company is probably going to have to cut costs and lay off employees. I mean, as, as we've previously reported, the company is in the process of putting together a, a restructuring plan that will probably come out, you know, either later this year or early next year, which is going to involve, you know, deep cuts. I wonder, it's so interesting because the company is focused on neuroscience, you know, an area that has not been super in vogue in the last few years in the biopharma industry. A number of companies have gotten out of the space. But because of the FDA's decision on Aduhelm using the accelerated approval pathway, you've heard more and more companies talking about opportunities in neuroscience. I was just talking with Bristol Myers' CEO this week, Giovanni Caforio, when they had an investor day, and he was really excited about building up their neuroscience business. Um, he talked about the science behind the, the bets they're making, but also the change in the regulatory environment. And it's something that Novartis's CEO told us he was really looking at as well after the Adjuhelm decision. So this has changed the neuroscience space, but the drug that made it happen is just you know, floundering. Is it foundering or floundering? I never know. I think the former. It could be both in this case. Okay, well, uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, I was just talking to someone this this morning about uh, sort of the, the sand rock of it all. And um, that person was mentioning that, you know, the first what appeared to be disease modifying drug for multiple sclerosis decades ago 
had what you would say was pretty weak efficacy, but it was approvable based upon you know the, the desperation at the time. And then later came much better drugs from Biogen um, that really changed the nature of that disease. And so there's, there's a sort of theory out there that in neuroscience, and particularly Alzheimer's, but just in general, that Biogen is this kind of I don't know, like advanced scout kind of doing blocking and tackling, but it may not actually benefit from the effects of this. As you mentioned, there are other companies pushing forward, um, other treatments for Alzheimer's disease that are you know nearer in the pipeline that come from other companies that might benefit from uh, the pioneering work that Biogen has done with Aduhelm, a drug that may never actually pay for its development. And so there is, I mean, it'd be, I think, overwrought to call it like a tragic aspect per se, but there is kind of a situation in which Biogen is not a victim of its own success, but but perhaps has done this work that will end up being almost financially thankless, but that clearly has had reverberations in the industry in which the company works. And I think it's also a recognition that there's a there's a lot of unmet need in neuroscience and and even more broadly if you kind of if you broaden that out to sort of neurodegeneration you know or you know neuromuscular degeneration those types of diseases there you know there are a lot of there are a lot of people who suffer from these diseases and there's there's not a lot of truly effective therapies for these patients and so you know I think we're seeing a lot of interest there and and rightly so and and it's not it's not necessarily an easy uh, an easy space to navigate through. And just rounding the conversation out, maybe by going back to Al Sandrock, do you guys think he's really going to retire or will we see him, you know, pop up as CEO of like a, a new neuroscience company or, or something like that? I mean, he is 64, but, you know, he always just struck me as really, really excited about the work he was doing. You know, he's a doctor who treated patients with ALS and uh, he always wanted to bring drugs for ALS and Alzheimer's and other, you know, diseases uh, forward. So what do you think is next? Yeah, I mean, so Al has not commented publicly on, on his plans. But having spent, uh, it feels like every day this week, talking to people who, who know him, who have worked with him, no one expects him to kind of just hang out on the Cape, as one, one person put it to me, and and take the rest of, of his years easy. Um, whether he'll pop up as a CEO, I don't know. But people have said uh, over and over, Meg, as you did, that his excitement for the science and for the pace of new stuff for some of these very desperate diseases is unlikely to dissipate. And likewise, his passion for mentoring is something that a lot of people have brought up within Biogen um, and in the sort of like MD, PhD universe of people who move between academia and industry. That's sort of the Al Sandrock sweet spot. And so I feel like the, the odds are on, you know, maybe being an advisor of some sort, taking a role at a venture firm, something that allows him to be tuned in to breakthroughs in science and and allow him to work with you know younger scientists and younger people in the business world moving those things forward. But whether he'll take like a full time publicly traded CEO job, people I talk to suggest perhaps not. And if Damien and I do our job right, um, this topic might be uh, the subject of a future <laughs> podcast episode. Unless I beat you, too. No, just kidding. Ooh, <laughs> well, we could still talk well, about then, it. On then the it podcast, will still though. then it will still be a there will still be a subject oh, true, of the podcast. True. <laughs> Week, families across the U.S. will get together to celebrate Thanksgiving, and a lot of us may be wondering how to do that safely. 
There are a lot of reasons this year is different, COVID vaccines being the biggest. But case numbers have already started ticking higher again nationally after a dramatically high plateau at more than 70,000 a day. As of today, they're up almost 20% in the past two weeks to a seven-day average of more than 85,000 daily cases. So we asked an expert to join us this week to help us get a sense of it all. Dr. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Well, thank you, Meg. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So maybe, you know, most proximate to, to what everybody's looking forward to, how are you approaching Thanksgiving this year? Well, uh, actually, I happen to be approaching it uh, in a better note than last year, given the vaccines and where my family situation is. But I also happen to sit in the state of Minnesota, which has the highest incidence of disease in the country right now at 80 cases per 100,000, which would actually place it, if we're a country, the 10th highest incidence in the world. Uh, if you look at the United States right now, a band across uh, northern, northeastern United States, uh, over into the Great Lakes states, and then really kind of a line right down to the Four Corners area, we are all now experiencing very rapidly emerging surges. So one of the challenges we have right now is in those areas in particular, uh, the question has to be raised, so what kind of vaccination levels do you have? Of, uh, do you have a booster? Uh, how long has it been since you've had your original doses? There's a lot of additional questions going on right now, uh, in these areas at least, about what one should do or not do. So how worried are you about these trends that you're seeing right now in the Midwest, and we're hearing about it in other areas of the country as well? Do you think we're in for a big winter surge? Is this just the beginning of it? And are the holidays going to fuel that, do you think? Well, let me unpack that uh, piece by piece, because there's a number of issues here. First of all, we have to acknowledge, we do not understand why there are surges of COVID-19, specifically around the Delta variant. Um, they happen, we then see the surge unfold, and they end. We can have a tremendous amount to do with how big that surge is in terms of height of the curve, you might say, or the number of cases, how many people are seriously ill or die all related largely to vaccination. Some of our distancing mitigation strategies can surely also uh, minimize the number of cases. But the point of it is we have no understanding yet of why surges begin and why do they end. Isn't it ironic if you look at what's happening right now globally, case numbers are on the rise around the world. Why? Because of two specific areas, Europe and the United States. Uh, and here we have some of the higher vaccination levels in the world. And so one of the things that's made it very hard to, to try to respond to COVID-19 has been, why does it do what it does? And then how do we help translate that to the public? Now's the time you must be most concerned. I think right now, frankly, one of the safest places in the world to be uh, from a community transmission standpoint is probably rural Louisiana, where after that major surge where they had just a tremendous, tremendous problem they are seeing almost no community-wide activity at all. And so this has made it very difficult for us. So if you're in an area with increased community transmission, yes, you have to be really concerned. I would also add, though, that in part of that uh, sense of not knowing exactly why things happen, such as surges, even that's true about the issue of travel. Everyone assumes that travel and bringing people together will automatically increase the case numbers. Last year, before we had vaccines, if you look carefully, you can see in the upper Midwest, our case numbers started dropping the week before Thanksgiving and continued to drop for the next six weeks. 
There was no evidence of a bump at all from Thanksgiving. And yet other states in the country had major bumps relative to the the time around Thanksgiving travel. So again, I can't explain that. I don't know what it means. I don't know how to interpret what it's going to do this year. So I think that's what makes it very hard right now is to try to predict what's going to happen with COVID. Um, uh, other than the fact of continuing to say, if you, the more people you vaccinate and the more people you assure have had their boosters in a timely manner, the lower the number of deaths, the lower the number of hospitalizations, and even the lower number of cases will follow. So on that exact topic, so the FDA and CDC are expected to broaden eligibility for booster shots to all adults uh, by Friday, and a lot of states and municipalities have beaten them to the punch in recent days, um, authorizing boosters or administering boosters to people uh, over 18, regardless of their risk factors. Do you think that might have an effect on how the winter plays out? Well, it's important, but let's not take our eye off the really most important ball, and that is first doses. Uh, that still remains the primary challenge in this pandemic in terms of serious morbidity, mortality uh, in, our, in our populations. So where you see uh, the highest number of deaths and you see the most hospitalizations, it's where you still have people who are unvaccinated who are becoming cases. I remind people that in the United States, we still likely have at least 60 million people who have yet to be vaccinated or have natural immunity from infection. That's a lot of human wood for this coronavirus forest fire to burn. So yes, I'm a very strong supporter of booster vaccinations. I've been that way for months. Uh, I saw the data as early as July. And, and at that point, I uh, was uh, in my own podcast talking about how important booster doses were likely going to be, not just as what I would call luxury doses, where we weren't just trying to prevent some mild illness that might occur, that we found that as you get further and further out from those first two doses of the mRNA vaccines or the single dose of J&J, the greater the likelihood of also having serious illness. And so I think these boosters are going to be really helpful. I'm so glad we're doing them. I reserve the right to say uh, in six months from now, what did we accomplish? I worry that uh, these boosters in of themselves may not be enough and we may have be having to consider boosters again in six months. Uh, but I think for right now, it's a very important message to say that if you get a booster dose, you basically restore your immune protection back to the level it was shortly after you had that original series. What role do you see these new antiviral drugs from Merck and Pfizer playing as they potentially become available over the next few months? Well, you know, Meg, it's uh, somewhat deja vu all over again for me as it relates to the vaccines. Uh, not quite a year ago, I did a, a podcast episode in my podcast in which I talked about the last mile and the last inch. And I laid out the challenge with vaccines as saying that it wasn't just enough to get the vaccines there. You know, we have to manufacture them, we have to get them to the community. But it's that last inch of getting the needle in the arm. And how do you do that? And we've always known that there would be that part of our society that couldn't wait to get the vaccines. But then very quickly, the, it's almost as if the light switch went off, we saw a very rapidly diminishing interest in the vaccines because then we got into that group of people that were vaccine hesitant, not, not, not against them. They just wanted more information to be sure. And then we got into the group that were vaccine hostile. Well, I worry that we may see some of the same issues with the drugs. We're already hearing about individuals who are equating these with the current administration. 
and that somehow these drugs and vaccines are almost hand in hand and that uh, therefore these are not what you want. You want ivermectin. So, you know, I hope that's not the case, but I also realize hope is not a strategy uh, that in fact we don't have a consumer bias against these drugs because somehow they're linked with being part of the vaccine world. If that were the case, the people who need these drugs the most in terms of serious illness and, and, and hospitalization and potential deaths are those who are unvaccinated. And so wouldn't that be terrible if they won't take the drugs? The second issue is, of course, these drugs have to be administered quickly relative to clinical outcome. And we've known that one of the challenges has been with influenza in the use of antivirals such as Tamiflu has been getting it into the patient quick enough. And that, I think, is going to be a logistic problem uh, in some ways that we haven't really thought very much about. But in the end, if we could solve those problems, this could be a game changer. This could be really important. It could be of critical importance to low- and middle-income countries if we can make these drugs widely available. So looking even further down the road, and thus that much more speculatively, but I wanted to ask you about the path from pandemic to endemic for COVID-19. So Dr. Anthony Fauci told our colleague Helen Branswell earlier this week that he sees it as a good benchmark as if there were significantly fewer than 10,000 cases a day to consider getting back to a degree of normality. When do you think we might realistically expect to get to that endemic disease level? Well, uh, you know, I... I say with real sincerity that uh, every morning when I get up, the first thing I do is I look across my bed to my bed stand and I, I see my crystal ball has been crusted with five inches of mud over the evening hours. And the first thing I do is work to scrape that mud off. So take this for uh, what you might call a crystal ball muddy view of the world. There are several questions that come up to play here. Number one, if we don't get durable immunity with the vaccines or even with natural infection, no one can tell you with any certainty what these vaccines are going to be doing for us in six to eight months. Number two is we still have to deal with the variants. You know, for the couple of people that are old enough uh, out there listening to this that remember the old Fifth Dimension, uh, the singing group of the 1960s, they had a song called The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. And I wake up every morning and I keep hearing this is the dawn of the age of the variants. Uh, again, we don't quite yet know what these variants are going to do. Uh, and I think even uh, to the extent that not only do we have to worry about human-related variants that are occurring people with who are infected around the world, remember that pandemic around the world that hasn't ended yet, what will that mean with blowback to countries like the United States if, in fact, we see a new variant that is more infectious that may actually escape the immune protection of natural infection or vaccine? And then two weeks ago, we were throwing a curveball about 210 miles an hour when we learned that the white-tailed deer population in Iowa, and now we have data from other states, was readily infected with SARS-CoV-2. How did these animals get infected? How many other animal reservoirs are out there right now that we don't understand or know about? What variants are they going to bring us? Are they going to bring us variants? Will we have to now one day wake up and say, oh my God, we just got the deer variant? But I think this is what I mean by staying very humble with this virus, because it seems like every week there's something new we learn that makes it more complicated in terms of the plans that we had yesterday. So do I think that we are ultimately going to prevail over this virus uh, more than we do now? Yes, I do. 
Will we get better vaccines? Maybe. You know, I think uh, we are all, you know, realizing these are remarkable tools we have now, but they're not perfect. But so right now, I'd have to say, I don't know what's going to happen the next year. You know, if somebody had said to you in May of last this past year that we were going to see this terrible surge throughout the summer, and now we're going to have this terrible surge going into Thanksgiving, nobody would have believed it. Meg, you know, I was <laughs> heavily criticized when I said uh, this past uh, spring that with the new variants, I thought that some of the darkest days of the pandemic still might be ahead of us. You know, nobody wanted to believe that. And I think we still have to keep an open mind about where we're going to go with this virus over the years ahead. This is not as simple as flu. I, w I wish this were flu. If this were an influenza pandemic, we would be settling into seasonal influenza already. It would be, you know, it would have delivered its punch. It would have started to become uh, more like a seasonal flu virus. And by next year at this time, we could feel certain, well, we were back into the flu season. We don't know where this virus is going to go. We just don't yet. One group of people that doesn't have the option about getting vaccinated yet, and this is a, a question coming from a place of self-interest, <laughs> kids under the age of five, of which I have one, um, what do you think the prospects are of a vaccine for younger kids? We've heard that Pfizer will likely have data by the end of the year. Um, but I asked Dr. Peter Marks at the FDA what they were thinking for the timeline. And he he sort of indicated the risk-benefit calculation for even younger children is 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 different uh, than even the 5 to 11-year-olds because they're less severely affected by severe disease. Um, but do you expect that we will have a vaccine for younger kids within a sort of near-term time frame? You know, I think we will, and I think we will for several reasons. Is uh, I think Dr. Marx's comments are, are right, uh, but even though it is less likely to cause severe disease in these youngest kids, when you compare that to other vaccine-preventable diseases that we actually have routine vaccines for that age of kids, COVID is still a very severe and, and a punishing disease in that age group. Number two, is the fact that they are still serving as major sources of transmission in our community. So when you look at the benefit, clearly we want to make sure there is a real benefit for the child, uh, not just a community benefit. Uh, but if we can show both a health benefit for the child, may not be as significant as for older children, but still there, we can show the benefit to the community and we can show that the risk of the vaccine itself is so very, very low I think we will see approval of these vaccines, uh, and, and I do think they will be very important. And like you, I don't have a child under age five, but I have a grandchild under age five. So I have a personal interest in this, just as you do. So, you know, speaking of, of vaccines and their acceptance, um, my colleague at StatLev Fasher had a story this week about how the resistance to COVID vaccine mandates is stretching beyond COVID-19 itself with right-wing politicians across the country pushing against any vaccine requirement, including for diseases like measles, mumps, and rubella. Is that on your radar? Are you worried this kind of backlash can have, can pose a threat to public health more broadly, even beyond COVID? You know, I think there are a number of threats to public health right now, and I think it goes back to the body politic that we have. One need look only at your the vaccine programs you just mentioned, and that's a very important point. I also have to say, with a very, very heavy heart, I have had a number of what I consider to be absolutely outstanding public health officials, public health scientists who have resigned their jobs because the pressure was so great, not just about COVID, but specifically about the partisan nature of what was happening. 
And I think you're going to see more and more of those resignations coming. And so I worry about the public health infrastructure. I worry about the funding. I don't think many people realize how we've pretty much kept this country's disease surveillance program operating on bailing wire and twine. It was really a situation where, uh, you know, we have, we have counties in this country that are still reporting cases by fax machines. Can you believe that? And so the systems have been antiquated and outdated for so long that we need to basically bring them into the 21st century. What kind of support is going to be avail available for that, depending on who happens to be in charge of the purse strings at a state or federal government level? And so I think that, that we have an overall threat to all of public health, the trust of public health. You know, uh, when you look back at many of the public health decisions that get made that are critical and to life-threatening conditions, they're not about the ones like vaccines, where typically it takes years and years and many thousands of pages of information and questions asked and answered and asked and answered. Many public health decisions get made just like Jon Snow did back in, in London some over 140 years ago when he took the pump handle off that well in Soho because he realized that people were likely getting cholera from that at a time 40 years before cholera bacillus was even discovered. And so I think that we make decisions a lot where we have to take action based on the best available information. And if we're blocked from doing that, people will die needlessly for a lot of other reasons. Do you take that food item off the market that you know is contaminated, or at least you believe is, and the data supports it, but you haven't proved it yet? Well, you could wait another three weeks to figure that out, but if you do, more people are going to consume it and die. And so we have a lot of things in public health right now that I think are threatened by the threatening world of governance. And so, yes, I worry a lot about vaccines, parents' acceptance of vaccines uh, and what they mean. But I also worry about just the ability of us to actually conduct public health in this country as well as other countries around the world. Well, as you mentioned before, you have your own weekly podcast focused on the COVID pandemic called the Osterholm Update, which we heartily recommend anyone listening to this to check that out as well. Dr. Osterholm, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's really great to be with you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which venture capital firm you think has already called Al Sandrock. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damien. No, I'm going to do that again. Okay. That, that was weird intonation. I liked that. That was, really that was weird like very, like, nightly news. Yeah, that that really Tonight. <laughs> that was awesome. I'm Adam Feuerstein. Here we go. <laughs>